You're listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au. If you'd like to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3, and we've been looking at the very first sin that was ever committed by humans. Adam and Eve, the very first two people on the planet, were placed in a perfect paradise in the Garden of Eden. It was a lush garden full of fruit trees, all of which they were welcome to eat from, all except one. So naturally, that forbidden tree automatically becomes the most desirable one. It's the old, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence syndrome. It's always the forbidden fruit that seems to be the most attractive to us. And then last week we saw the process of temptation and sin as well, and we learnt that sin only becomes possible if there is a rule to break. If Adam and Eve had been permitted to eat from every tree without exception, then there wouldn't have been any rules for them to break, and therefore they wouldn't have sinned. But the moment God made a rule, just one single rule, the possibility of breaking that rule existed. So does that mean that the rule, the law, is bad? The Apostle Paul explains that like this. In, in Romans 7, he says, What shall we then say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, the, if it had not been for the law, I would, have, would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. The one simple rule that was given to Adam and Eve was designed to provide life and to protect life, and to preserve life. And every law ever given by God, regardless of what it is, is designed for the exact same purposes. Now Adam and Eve at first knew nothing of sin. They knew nothing of wrong or disobedience. But they weren't alone in that garden. There was another there. There was one there whose every intention was to corrupt and to poison and to destroy. Genesis 3 refers to him as the serpent. But the rest of the Bible makes that clear that the serpent was, in some unexplained way, the mouthpiece of the devil. And he convinced Eve initially that God is not the good guy that he pretends to be and that there will be no harm to come from eating the forbidden fruit. So Eve picks some of the fruit and she eats. And she hands some to her husband Adam who was right there with her watching the whole thing. He too eats. And instantly, everything changes. Genesis 3.7 tells us, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. They not only realised that they were naked, but they suddenly knew evil. Their consciences were awakened, and now they knew right from wrong, and they knew that they had done wrong. James describes the process like this in James chapter 1, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed 
by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And not only did they now know that they were naked, not only did they now know evil, but their relationship with each other was fractured too. We see that in the way they answered God's questions when he came looking for them in the cool of day. Adam's first response was to shift the blame to Eve, as if he's an innocent victim. The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me of the fruit and I ate. We see the relational damage not only in passing the buck and trying to unload the guilt onto someone else, but also in the way Adam refers to her now. The woman, he says, not Eve, not my wife, but the woman. It's as if she has no part of him anymore, as if they're strangers, enemies even. But she is so much a part of him that she was created from his rib. It's hard to picture a closer relationship than that. Now they're torn apart by sin and guilt and shame. Eve uses the same tactic by trying to pin the blame on the devil. The serpent deceived me and I ate. The devil made me do it. Both of them try the old, it's not my fault, blame someone else. Have you ever wondered what might have happened if Adam had refused to eat the forbidden fruit? Even though Eve had already eaten, there was still time to correct the situation. For it wasn't until Adam ate that the eyes of both of them were open. That's because Adam was Eve's federal head. It's a concept we've talked about over the last couple of weeks. And he is our federal head as well. Essentially, Adam is a representative of all who come from him, whether it's Eve who was created from his rib or whether it is us who were, to use biblical terminology, in his loins at the very beginning. He represents all humanity before God. So as representative, imagine if Adam had obeyed God perfectly instead of eating. Imagine if he'd gone to God in repentance and as an advocate for Eve instead of joining with her in rebellion. What do you think might have been the result? Now the Bible never tells us, never suggests what may have happened, but I doubt we would have seen the fall of man. We wouldn't have seen the ensuing corruption of our natures and the corruption of the rest of creation as well. Now that's just speculation, of course. He didn't do that, and we know and experience the tragic results of his failure and his sin every moment of our lives. That's all bad enough. Sin has done serious damage already. In an instant, it's done damage. But there's worse to come. Not only did they know they were naked, not only did they now know evil, not only was their relationship with each other fractured, but now their relationship with God was fractured too. The man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, Genesis 3.8 tells us. As God had warned Adam, in the day that you eat of this tree, you shall surely die. They didn't die physically on that day, although we know the process of physical decay has now begun. But they did die spiritually. The relationship of innocence and purity that they had before God was now shattered which is why they imagined that they could hide from God. The effects of sin are never confined to just the individual who commits it, not even personal, private sin. It always has an impact beyond that individual in some way. 
even if that sin was never committed against another person, if, even if nothing else happens, there is guilt and shame introduced that makes us try to hide from the other person. That person may be our closest friend, but now there is something to hide from them. Sin destroys harmony and peace. Author Cornelius Plantinga writes about sin as a breaking of shalom. Shalom is a Hebrew word for peace, but it means far more than just simple peace of mind or a ceasefire between enemies. He writes, in the Bible, shalom means universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. It's a rich state of affairs in which our natural needs are satisfied and natural gifts are fruitfully employed. It's a state of affairs that inspires joyful wonder as its creator and saviour opens doors and welcomes the creatures in whom he delights. Shalom, in other words, is the way things ought to be. That's a picture of the Garden of Eden as God created it. It's a picture that far exceeds the common idea of Eden as just being a pleasant garden. Rather, the garden was a place of shalom, a place of universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. It was the way things ought to be. With, the, with no sin, no pain, no distrust there, with free and open relationships and with the joy that accompanies every action and every activity. But sin ripped that shalom apart. Plantinga goes on to say, Sin is not only the breaking of the law, but also the breaking of covenant with one saviour. Sin is the smearing of a relationship, the grieving of one's divine parent and benefactor, a betrayal of the partner to whom one is joined by a holy bond. A sin is any act, any thought, desire, word or deed, or its particular absence that displeases God and deserves blame. God hates sin not just because it violates his law, but more substantively because it violates shalom, because it breaks the peace because it interferes with the way things ought to be. God is for shalom and therefore against sin. In fact, we may safely describe evil as any spoiling of shalom, whether physically, e.g. by disease, morally, spiritually or otherwise. Shalom is God's design for creation and redemption. And sin is blamable human vandalism, of these great realities and therefore is an affront to their architect and builder. Now I think Plantinga's description of shalom and sin are helpful because he shows us that sin is more than just breaking a law, whether that law is explicit or otherwise. It is anything that interferes with shalom, anything that damages the way things ought to be. That's why Jesus could say that adultery is more than just the physical act. It includes the thoughts, the desire, the intention. For these things interfere with shalom. That means sin is much broader than individual law-breaking. And so this concept, I think, helps us to decide whether any thought, word or action we might be considering is sinful by helping us to think whether it is helpful or harmful to shalom helpful or harmful to the way things ought to be. Now the concept of shalom is important in the Bible. It pops up all over the place, including in place names. 
That mysterious but important figure Melchizedek, for example, is king of Salem. Salem is a version of the word Shalom. And the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Melchizedek is both king of peace and king of righteousness. No wonder the Bible makes much of him as a type of Christ. Shalom also comes up again at the end of the Bible. And specifically at the end of the chaos and the torment and the war that is the book of Revelation. Revelation ends, as we know, with a new Jerusalem, a city where God dwells forever with his people. And it's a place where perfect shalom will never again be disturbed. For there will be no sickness, no pain, no loss, no death, no sin. The new Jerusalem will be a place of universal flourishing, wholeness and delight. A place where things are exactly the way they ought to be. The name Jerusalem means city of shalom, city of peace. The current Jerusalem has been anything but a city of peace for millennia now. But that's why a new city of peace is needed. That's why a new Jerusalem is needed. And it's coming one day. It's coming. But in the meantime, let's read our text and see what other consequences there are for Adam and Eve's sin. We'll pick it up in Genesis 3, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit, and she ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together, and made themselves loincloths. And then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat it, but all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you will return. The man called his, his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. 
Now lest he reach out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every which way to guard the way to the tree of life. I'll skip over the curse that's pronounced on the serpent for now. I want to look at the wider consequences of sin, the impact on it has on us physically and vocationally. To Eve, God declared that pregnancy, birth and motherhood would be accompanied by pain. Whether birth would have been painful before the curse, who knows? The Bible doesn't tell us. But given the stresses on various body parts during the birth act, it's hard to imagine that it could have been pain-free. And we'll never know, because no woman ever got pregnant and gave birth in a sin-free state. But God did say he would multiply her pain. Any woman who has ever given birth, I'm sure, would affirm the truth of God's statement. And any mother would affirm that pain lasts far beyond the birth moment. Maybe not physically, but emotionally. The woman will suffer as she watches her child get hurt or sick as he grows up. She might watch her son get into serious trouble or see her relationship with her daughter break down irreparably. Or maybe worse, she might outlive her children, a pain no mother should have to experience. Her childbearing will multiply pain for her for as long as she lives. Now God's pronouncement is both a curse and a blessing. It's a curse because of the increased and ongoing pain, but it's a blessing because it's a promise that life would spring forth from Eve and from every woman. As verse 20 says, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. The name Eve means life bearer. Here she's given a name that promises life would come from her. There's another part to the judgment on Eve than just the pain in childbearing. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now there's some debate about what exactly this means. There can be little doubt that it speaks of friction in their relationship, some sort of power struggle between them that wasn't there before the sin. And that manifests even today, not just in a frosty bedroom after a fight, not just in passive-aggressive behaviour towards each other, but more forcefully it manifests in the militant feminist movement or more violently in domestic abuse. One author has written, the ongoing result of Adam and Eve's original sin of rebellion against God will have disastrous consequences for their relationship. Eve will have the sinful desire to oppose Adam and to assert leadership over him, reversing God's plan for Adam's leadership in marriage. But Adam will also abandon his God-given pre-full role of leading, guarding and caring for his wife, replacing this with his own sinful distorted desire to rule over Eve. Thus one of the most tragic results of Adam and Eve's rebellion against God is an ongoing damaging conflict between husband and wife in marriage, driven by the sinful behaviour of both in rebellion against their respective God-given roles and responsibilities in marriage. This pain in childbirth and this friction in relationships 
serve as a perpetual reminder of the serious consequences of sin. And they should cause us all to cry out that this is not the way things are meant to be. And in doing so, they should cause us to cry out for a saviour, for rescue from the pain. To Adam, God pronounced a life sentence of hard labour. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. Even creation itself is impacted by Adam's sin. The previously fertile soil that Adam was to work will now fight against him. Cursed is the ground because of you. Thorns and thistles it will bring forth. Have you ever wondered why weeds proliferate in your garden? Why every time you go to plant a tree, the soil is as hard as concrete? You can blame Adam for that. For his sin impacted everything. Not just himself, not just his relationships and his descendants. His sin impacted creation itself. God's punishment of the man affects even his relationship to the dirt from which he was formed. Now instead of the abundance of fruit available to him in the garden with little effort, he'll have to struggle for every meal for the rest of his days. You know, in the original creation, Adam still had to work the ground. It wasn't a life of laid-back luxury. Genesis 2.15 tells us the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So work itself is not specifically a curse, even though many of us may think it's a curse. But work itself isn't. In fact, for men especially, work seems to be part of our identity. It should be no surprise to us, though, given that Adam was created to work the ground. Work is a natural part of our makeup and the need and the desire to work. And it's not an uncommon story that some men retire from work and quickly lose their sense of purpose and meaning and die soon after. With the curse, the effort of work changes from a pleasant task to hard yakka. It changes from gardening for relaxation to a struggle to survive. And that changes our whole perspective on work. The punishment is not the work itself, but it's rather the hardship and the frustration, the pain that now accompanies labour and accompanies his and our labour too. That the ground is cursed and will bring forth thorns and thistles tells us that the abundant supply of Eden will no longer be available to Adam. So man's brief but harmonious uh, relationship with nature has been torn apart by sin. Paul wrote to the Romans in Romans chapter 8 and 19, The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of God. Of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
Paul's referring back to the Garden of Eden. He's referring back to the curse on both the man and the woman. That explains why we experience raging storms like we've had this past week. Earthquakes, floods, bushfires. Creation is groaning. So creation itself has been impacted by Adam's sin. And now the process of degeneration and death has begun too. Adam's body will return to the ground and will turn back to the dust from which he was made. Ray Steadman says that pain, sweat and death are the limits of life. They are the prison walls that hem us in. Paul continues in Romans 8 verse 23, Not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The Bible looks forward to a time when creation itself will be set free from the consequences of human sin. And it will finally have glorified human beings to manage it and to bring out its full potential. We'll see that at the end of time according to Revelation 21 and 22. But until then, we all suffer the consequences of Adam's sin in our bodies, in our relationships and in nature. All of these consequences from personal guilt and shame to hiding from God to distrust between husband and wife, to painful births, to difficult and monotonous work, to sickness and death. They are all designed to be more than just a curse and a punishment for committing sin. They're meant to remind us that this is not the way things are meant to be. And in recognising that, they're meant to cause us to cry out to God for rescue. All these curses are designed to point us to a saviour, to point us ultimately to Jesus Christ who will deliver us from them. And that's exactly what he promises to do for all who would put their trust in him. Now Now that we know what impact Adam's original sin had on relationships and on creation, the question we need to ask ourselves is what can we do to ensure that we don't fall into the same trap? Will we allow ourselves to be enticed by the devil's lies and his empty promises? We know the way of righteousness. Will we fall into his trap? After all, the way of righteousness has been written on our hearts now. To say nothing of our consciences that warn us, that remind us, that turn and tell us to turn from sin. We know that sin has put a wedge between husband and wife and between friends too. What steps are we taking to ensure not to not only resist the temptation to behave the same way, but to treat our spouses and our friends with love, with respect, with honour, with dignity? We know that sin has damaged our planet. Are we continuing to abuse it? Or will we care for it as best we can with our limited resources? And where will we find our joy? Where will we find our satisfaction and shalom? Will it continue to be in the shallow and the fleeting pleasures of this world? Or will it be in the only one who can genuinely satisfy and satisfy forever? Ultimately, 
We don't have the answers to these questions within ourselves, within our fleshly abilities. We do what we can. We do our best to follow our Lord faithfully. But whatever we do will never reverse the consequences and the effects of sin. We need another for that. We need another who came for just that very purpose. We need another who suffered the consequences of sin more brutally than we could ever imagine, more brutally than any man ever, even though he himself was without sin. And in doing so, he paid the penalty for Adam's sin. He paid the penalty for your sin. He paid the penalty for my sin. And he's in the process of reversing the effects of that sin too. One day he'll complete that process. One day when he comes to take his own back home to a renewed and recreated garden and city. In the meantime, he calls us to put our trust in him, in Jesus Christ, and to follow him in joyful obedience. Will you do that? I invite you to stand with me if you're able. There's nothing particularly holy or sacred about standing, but I invite you to stand anyway. As we remember with the bread and the juice, just what it is that Jesus went through. We're reminded by this bread and the juice of the consequences of sin, that sin requires a penalty to be paid. That sin results in death. And it is only death that can pay that penalty appropriately. But the problem for us is if we pay with our own life without a saviour, there's no way back. We die in our sins and we die forever in our sins. But thank God there is a saviour, Jesus Christ, one who came as Adam was our representative in sin, he came as our representative in righteousness. And he came and he bore the penalty on that cross in his own body and suffered the death that we deserve. And he rose again. He rose again to defeat death and sin forever on our behalf and as our representative. And he lives to advocate for us before the Father in heaven. How could this heavenly lawyer fail to present his case, to present our case? Because it's presented in his righteousness and not in our own. Father, let's pray. Father, the bread and the juice remind us that, that Adam sinned at the very beginning and plunged the whole world, all his descendants, all of creation into Chaos, disruption, death, enmity with you. It turned the Garden of Eden from the way things ought to be to the way things should never be. And Lord, it's not only Adam who is guilty of that. We are, every day of our lives, guilty of breaking your shalom, 
of acting in ways that destroy harmony, peace. And Lord, we stand before you today and we offer our hearts and our lives afresh to you. David said, Lord, see if there is any wicked way within me and wash me whiter than snow, Lord. Lord, we thank you for the blood of Jesus that does wash whiter than snow. Lord, we look forward to that day when he redeems us bodily as well and we become full citizens of the new Jerusalem, living in new and permanent shalom with no sin, no sickness, no death, no pain, no grief. Lord, would you continue to work in us to conform us more to the image of your Son. And Lord, for all the ways in which we have fallen short and which we have willfully sinned against you, Lord, we come before you in repentance this morning and ask, Lord, that you will cleanse our hearts, cleanse our minds afresh, that we can come into your presence with boldness and confidence because we come presenting the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed on our behalf. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Father. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for making this a reality in our lives. Let's eat and drink. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word shows us how things got so bad in this world and every day is a day filled with pain in some way. Lord, we thank you that you have revealed to us how that came about and even the part that we play in that. But Lord, we thank you your word reveals to us the solution to sin in Jesus Christ. And we commit our hearts afresh to him this morning. Pray for all my brothers and sisters here and for all our brothers and sisters elsewhere, Lord, that you will renew in our hearts a passion for you, Jesus Christ, a passion for joyful obedience, that we would represent you well. And we pray for those, Lord, who don't yet know you in this way, that you will change their hearts, you will open their eyes and their hearts and their minds to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. They may be saved and join us in that new Jerusalem one day. And thank you, Father, for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to City Edge Church. For more information, go to cityedgechurch.com.au.